The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. Welcome to Berean Bible Church. Why are y'all laughing over here? Okay, anyway. Yes, so yeah, today we are going to be uh, looking at the uh, parable from Luke 19. And the reason for this mainly is, as most of us are probably already fully aware, we hear from this pulpit often, um, and get a proper, to get a proper understanding of Scripture, we really have to understand the language and culture and worldview of those to whom it was written to and to those who are actually you know, hearing these words. Because often a basic reading in our English translations doesn't always capture the nuances and cultural references that the original audience would have quickly grasped. So this morning I'd like to take a look at this parable that we are probably all familiar with, as Gary mentioned, where a lot of the meaning can get lost in our modern thought. Most Bible readers these days are quick to just accept the initial surface level reading, glean over the pract- whatever practical application that they can, and then they move on doing whatever, and that in doing so, they end up missing what may actually be being taught in these messages from Jesus. Now, once we dig in and start to see the cultural understanding of things, we begin to see much more and start to make more sense in the whole scheme of things. It may not always necessarily change the total application, but in many times it indeed may. Now, before we jump into this parable, though, let's get over some, look over some background information on what a parable is in general, just to catch us all up. So, what is a parable? Here are some technical definitions. It denotes a placing beside. It signifies a placing of one thing beside another with a view to comparison. It is generally used of a somewhat lengthy utterance of, or narrative drawn from, the nature, from nature or human circumstances the object of which is to set forth a spiritual lesson. Or from the Dictionary of Judaism in the Biblical period, it tells us that parables are instructional narratives, metaphors, or similes, which appear throughout Mediterranean and Egyptian literature of antiquity. Important to the discussion today is that this last definition refers to the fairly common place of the use of parables within ancient literature. Speaking of parables was more of a cultural practice back then than it necessarily is in our time. And for that reason, we may not always grasp as much from them without putting a little effort in to understand them. Scholars and historians speak of two types of theologians, the conceptual and the metaphoric. A conceptual theologian is typically what we in the West have practiced for centuries. It's the one who constructs theology from ideas held together by logic. Theologians like this tend to be more serious, abstract. They write in a scholarly manner, and oftentimes it's a little harder to understand for the average person. And their books are really expensive for some reason. Now, Paul works with both ideals and metaphors. But in the West, we tend to emphasize Paul's ideals, his ideas and concepts, and push aside his metaphors. We make him more of a conceptual theologian in our mind. On the opposite side, most people view Jesus as purely metaphoric. 
Or as Middle Eastern New Testament professor Kenneth Bailey puts it, he is a village rustic creating folktales for fishermen and fishermen and farmers. Jesus' primary way of teaching was through metaphor, simile, parable, and dramatic action, rather than through reason and logic. For some people, this takes Jesus out of the category of a serious theologian or philosopher and puts him strictly in the category of being more like a dramatist or a poet. They turn him into a man who gave lots of nice little teachings about love and good living and not much about deep theology. However, for those who have seriously examined his parables and metaphors more closely, have found that they are filled with serious theology. Sadly, much of this theology is easily missed due to our minds being filled with our own Western, Greek, and modern cultural thoughts, which end up missing much of the application of what he is actually saying. Metaphors are used to communicate ideas in a way that rational arguments are not always able to do. As the saying goes, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, metaphors are like picture stories to help get points across. We sometimes use them today when we speak using stories and other examples to get our point across. A metaphor, though, is not just an illustration of an idea. It is a form of theological discourse, and a parable is an extended metaphor that sets the scene for viewing things through a new worldview lens. We tend to want to view these parables as a good launching point for a general idea being put across, but that's not really the proper way to view them, or not really the way they were viewed historically in that culture. I like the way that Kenneth Bailey states it. He says, The listener or reader of the parable is encouraged to examine the human predicament through the worldview created by the parable. The casing is all that remains after a shell is fired. Its only purpose is to drive the shell in the direction of the target. It is easy to think of a parable in the same way and understand it as a good way to launch an idea. Once the idea is on its way, the parable can be disregarded. But this is not so. If the parable is a house in which the listener or reader is invited to take up residence, then that person is urged by the parable to look on the world through the windows of that residence. Such is the reality of the parables created by Jesus of Nazareth, a reality that causes a special problem. He goes on to describe how when it comes to the logic and reasoning as modern theologians practice, the understanding of the theology involved requires a clear mind and a little hard work. However, for the theology presented by Jesus, grasping what is being portrayed in his stories and dramatic events is not always grasped by contemporary readers. And to fully understand requires knowledge of the culture of the storyteller. So we will never truly grasp the nature and implications of his sayings without having a grasp on the surrounding culture of which he spoke these things. In order to truly unlock the truths in the parables, we must first consider a few necessary steps. First, we must realize that digging for the true meaning is necessary and important. Sure, anyone can read the Bible and be blessed by what it says. We may even receive blessings from a misimplied use of the stories. However, to an ear better trained to the language and culture of the Bible will hear and understand much more from the text and get its true intent. 
To avoid doing the work required to get this understanding, as mentioned, the modern church tends to indigenize them. They figure the first century people thought and acted much like we do today. So we end up interpreting based on our modern understandings. We look at these stories as just little ditties that they that give us some universal appeal to all men, and we get whatever we can from them. This makes the understanding of the Bible to be more of a relative work of te- book of teachings that varies from person to person with no absolute meaning. I believe this type of mentality is one of the main causes of all the disagreements, debates, and divisions in the church that ends up leading to a church on every corner that cannot get along with the church down the street. We read stories like that of the prodigal son, and we may see a rebellious teen, a jealous brother, a loving father, and we just take it as a nice story and apply it as we can. However, we totally miss the fact that in Middle Eastern culture where this story was taking place, for a son to ask for his inheritance while the father was still alive was equal to telling the father that you wished he would drop dead. This greatly heightens the loving response of the father in the story, who normally would have gotten mad and cast the son out of the house. Secondly now, in order to get a better understanding, we need to realize the historical nature of the Word of God. The Bible truly is the Word of God, but it is also to be seen as the Word of God spoken through real people in real historic settings. Ignoring the historicity of it means it will mean missing the original intent and audience relevance. It is interesting how most people remember and apply the historic settings of other literature that they read, but tend to ignore it when it comes to the Bible. Thirdly, we must seek to find the meanings in the parables that are legitimate and not seek to stretch the boundaries of the metaphor too far. In other words, we cannot over-examine every jot and tittle of a story looking for meanings and parallels in everything that it says. This again is where audience relevance comes in, for we cannot force a meaning of understanding into the story that would have been totally alien to the original audience. People through the centuries have found interpretations within the stories of Jesus that enforce their own views and ideals, things like Marxism, socialism, existentialism, all kinds of interesting teachings. But those things would have never been, would have been totally foreign to anything that Jesus ever intended or thought to convey to his audience. So in essence, I think Bailey, who I'll be quoting from a bit here, uh, puts it best when he summarizes by saying, Simply stated, our task is to stand at the back of the audience around Jesus and listen to what he is saying to them. Only through that discipline can we discover what he is saying to any age, including our own. So now, let's see. We're going to look now at Matthew 13.10, where we are told why Jesus chose to speak in parables, or as the little translation puts it, as similes. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, 
and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So we can see from Jesus' own words that he was intentionally speaking in such a manner that made it more difficult to understand because the main target audience he had come to speak to were pretty much already blind and deaf to the truth. And he was instead coming to those who were given the ears to hear that the plans of God would be fulfilled through them instead. Now, our intention today will be uh, on the familiar parable of the minas or the pounds as mentioned. depends on the translation you're reading. We'll be examining it in Luke to attempt to get a more, more detail into what is actually being said and implied here. So we read it before, but for those watching here, look for me with me at chapter 19, starting with verse 12 again. He said, Therefore a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent the delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your minas have made ten minas more. And he said to to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming... I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So on the surface, it sounds pretty cut and dry. It's about a story of investing for gain. But let's look at it a little deeper than just surface level and see how cultural background details can alter the story. First off, many scholars tied this story in with a contemporary event, one of which even happened around the time of the birth of Jesus. So it was still somewhat a recent happening 30 years later. It would have been familiar common knowledge to them at that time when they heard this message. In the political environment of that time, the scenario was somewhat common where a would-be ruler had to travel to the main city to receive his new position of authority. It was possibly it was possible that his enemies would follow him in route, seeking to destroy him along the way, meaning he would never return to his loyal subjects. But also, while he was gone, it was not uncommon for the citizens of the city to rebel and cause trouble in the kingdom. Sometimes this may even lead to the abuse of those who were under the power that were left behind in order to keep things in order. 
In 40 BC, Herod the Great made such a journey to Rome as was common to be appointed as king. In 4 BC, Herod died, and his son Archelaus was expected to become the new king. He began ruling upon his father's death, but he was still expected to make the journey to be officially deemed the ruler by Caesar Augustus. Unfortunately, there was opposition to his being the ruler, and when he arrived at Rome, he found that some of his own family members had filed rival claims to the throne. Also, on top of that, about 50 Jewish rulers had come from Jerusalem, seeking to let Caesar know why they thought Archelaus was was unfit to govern. In other words, they would not have this man to be king over them. So, the The travel to receive the authority was required, but it was not an assurance that the authority would be given since it could be challenged. So when a would-be ruler made the trek, there would be potential uncertainty. There would be potential uncertainty in the land while he was gone, and it could lead to chaos and turmoil among the factions involved. In the case of Archelaus, his return took longer than expected, but in the end he was given the kingship as Caesar wanted to give him the chance to prove himself. Of course, when he returned with the power, he rounded up those who had opposed him and executed swift judgment against them. So with this little bit of historic background as a foundation, we should be able to see how much more relevant this parable would have been to those who heard it. Another potential issue many modern readers have, especially American ones, would be the use of our own capitalist culture eyes to view this parable as an issue of money as investments and returns, when that is really not the issue here at all. The political climate back in the day was quite turbulent, and at the time when there was a change in power like that, those loyal servants to the one coming into power may have it tough while their leader was away to gain that authority. They may in their, be assured of themselves that their leader's success will be achieved and that he will return, but the other factions may not be so sure. Would those faithful followers stand up and continue to openly profess allegiance? Would they continue to do business in his name and authority of this soon-to-be ruler? Or would they hide and keep quiet until he returned in power and was there to protect them? That is more of what's being spoken of here. First off, let's back up a little and see what kind, what kind of starts this off in the whole parable. They had just left the house of Zacchaeus where Jesus stated, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now this would have set off eschatological and apocalyptic red flags in the minds of the apostles. For if salvation had come to someone like a tax collector, then surely it was there for the nation. Plus with Passover being so near, this was the perfect time. And he was speaking clear kingdom talk in their minds. We know this because of their response in the next verse and because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So salvation has come. Passover is near. They're heading to the center of their world, Jerusalem. So surely the arrival of the kingdom in all of its glory is right around the corner. But with this parable... Jesus throws a wrench in their ideas by showing them that there will be a bit more time before the fullness of the kingdom. He must leave, receive the authority, and return with that authority. And just to be clear, by kingdom here, he keeps referring to that, but it is referring to reign, his authority. Basically, he has to go get sworn in and and receive. So 
He's not actually going to get a city and drag it back to, you know. <laughs> I know we see that word kingdom, but anyway. It's his, uh, to receive the power in his reign there. Now, as we stand in hindsight, it's clear who the parties of the parable are and the general idea of the story. But again, with the cultural understanding, we were able to see a bit more clearly exactly what this is. As the nobleman is about to leave to receive the kingdom, he distributes gifts to his followers. This is in effect saying to them, be faithful while I am gone and promote my good name to those around you. Yes, it's easy to be bold while the leader is there to protect you, but when gone and they are encircled with their enemies, how will they conduct themselves publicly then? After giving them the gifts, he tells them to engage in business until I come. Now, the word used for until is a little Greek expression, in ho. And some scholars state that this literally means in which. And while it can legitimately be translated as until, as it often is, and as we see here in our verse in the ESV, it is, of another, op- it is another option to read it as causative, meaning it is producing something. And so we could see it as, do business because I come back. By turning this phrase in ho into a time reference until, it becomes more of a command to go do business in the short time they have and make as much profit as they can. Yet, in this case, in the parable, why upon returning does he commend them for their faithfulness and not their successfulness in much profit? He said to them, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, you have authority over ten cities. So it is probably better to read this phrase as more of a causative, meaning he is telling them to do business in a situation in which he is coming back. So in essence, he is telling them to stand firm and boldly proclaim his business, for he is indeed coming back to examine their faithfulness in it. Are the servants willing to take the risk of openly declaring continued allegiance and loyalty to the soon-to-be king during his absence, in a place and time where many surrounding them oppose the king's rule and threaten the safety of the servants? A real-life situation similar to this is also told in Bailey's book, and I find it worth relaying here. He says, It has been my privilege to teach short courses for the Lutheran Church of Latvia, While I was at the Lutheran Academy in Riga, I observed the interviewing of some new students for the academy. I asked the interviewing committee what kinds of questions that they asked to these applicants. They told me, the most important question is, when were you baptized? And I asked, why is that the date of baptism such an important question? They answered, if they were baptized during the period of Soviet rule, they risked their lives and compromised their futures by being baptized. But if they were baptized after liberation from the Soviets, we have many further questions to ask them why they want to become a pastor. This is the thrust of the discussion in this parable. Will, they, will the servant be bold and public, using the resources given to continue doing open business in his name, unafraid of the enemies, and being confident in the success of their leader's future? Now in verse 15, I prefer the way Young's literal translates it, as it does translate it in more of a way of faithfulness and not financial gain. It says, He commanded these servants to be called to him to whom he gave the money that he might know what anyone had done in business. He wanted to know how they had conducted business or how much business had been conducted. Or other translations like the ESV stated as, He ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him 
that he might know what they had gained by doing business. See, that makes it sound more like he's asking how much money was gained by doing business, making it again appear to be more about the business practices that lead to profit and not simply about being openly faithful in their business. Now, the term used here, and I'm going to butcher this, diapragmatiomahi. I am not a Greek scholar. Now, this is the only appearance of it in the Greek scriptures. The primary meaning of it is how much business was transacted, or as Stairs puts it, thoroughly, earnestly to undertake a business. Though some do list it as how much has been gained by business or by trading, as we see in many of the translations of modern days. Now, from the second century onward, though, the Syriac and Coptic versions of the text have all consistently chosen the first meaning, as has most uh, Arabic versions. It may sound minor, but the difference can be pretty critical. Is the master concerned with the amount of profit or with the open loyalty and assurance of success during his absence? The primary meaning tends to lean towards a suggested view that the master was asking about their obedience and faithfulness during uncertain times. The same idea of being faithful publicly is what we see throughout the scriptures time and time again. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven, Matthew 5.16. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven, Matthew 10 and Luke 12. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, Matthew 7. So faithfulness in doing and proclaiming before men, that was the desire of the day. How much was accomplished? Not how much was accomplished as far as profit. The disciples were being told of tough times coming after his departure, and they were being instructed that they must remain faithful even to the death. Now, when we look back at the parable, we can see the main characters to be Jesus, who is the one going away to receive his kingdom power and return. And then there are those servants who he left behind and he commissioned to work in his absence. As mentioned, we see in the verse prior to the parable that disciples, the disciples had assumed the kingdom was fully to come, like soon, like any day now. However, Jesus in turn tells the story of first going away for a time and then would be returning before all that would happen. He gives the servants gifts, and we are told that the other citizens of the nation who were of the opinion that they would not have this man to reign or rule over them. Now, this scenario is easy to see. You have the followers of Jesus surrounded by the citizens of the supposed kingdom of God, the national Israelites, who should have known the Messiah when they saw him, but in fact, they did not. Eyes and ears not open. They, they thus became the very enemies of Yahweh and his people, and they rejected the Messiah and what he had to offer, and they persecuted his followers, especially once he was gone. This Jesus was not their king. It is they who had the blood on their hands from the torture and crucifixion of Jesus. Now, for his disciples, the imminence of the kingdom was understood, but the timing, not so much understood. So this going away and returning kind of threw them for a loop. But even so, they still knew it was right around the corner and it would be something that they would see and experience. Then Jesus is crucified. Something else the disciples didn't fully understand as part of the plan, 
But three days later, he rises from the grave and he returns to their presence for a time. So was this leaving and returning what he had told them about in the parable? Seems they might have thought so because right after he arrives, the disciples bring up the question again. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed from his own authority. Again, they knew it had to be soon, and they wanted it to be now. And he again tells them that's not the case. He's, his leaving to receive the kingdom was to take place at his ascension that soon followed. He instead tells them in the next verse, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit come, has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, bingo. There we go. This should have taken him right back to the parable that we've been discussing. Here he is about to leave, and he's about to receive his kingdom in all of its fullness. And he says they will be bestowed with power or gifts, and they're to do business with it and be witnesses until he returns, just like in the parable. Now, let's stop for a moment to explore the eminency that the disciples had in this matter. I want to bring to your attention a little point that should be fairly obvious to most, but due to traditional presuppositions, often gets glossed over, or actual contrary views get taught in order to help to line things up with the view of the timing of these events. It's, I'd like to set this up by reading a couple sections from a recently released 2009 commentary by a modern commentator on Luke. And uh, this section I'm reading is in response to the initial apostles' question in Luke where they are asked if the time was now for the kingdom. He says, It is easy to see why people would make this mistake. The more they heard what Jesus said and saw what Jesus could do, the more certain some people became that he was the promised king. Jesus was healing the blind. He was saving sinners, including the kind of rich people who almost never repent. He was preaching the kingdom of God. Soon the gathering masses would sweep him right up to Jerusalem in a frenzy of messianic expectancy. It was almost Palm Sunday when people would shout, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Is it any wonder that they thought the kingdom of God was coming right away? So this backs up everything that we've said before, that we can see why they would have been, there would have been some confusion for the disciples about the, the events that were coming soon. The commentator goes on by saying, At the same time, it is easy to see why Jesus was careful to correct their false assumption. The kingdom had come, but it had not yet come in the fullness of its final glory. Jesus still needed to suffer and die on the cross. He still needed to rise from the dead and ascend to heaven. Perhaps most importantly, he still needed to do his gospel work among the nations through the church. The kingdom had come in one sense, but in another sense, it would not come until Jesus came Again, now, all good stuff. I agree with all of his comments in all of this. However, the very next paragraph is where he seems to ignore a key part of the parable. He states, Some Bible scholars seem troubled by the fact that although the New Testament says that Jesus is coming soon, he still hasn't come. Um, yeah, so, it is a big issue because if Jesus applied to his audience that he's coming soon to them, and he did, then a non-occurrence would and should be an issue. 
But wait, there's more. The commentator continues. Thus, they treat the delay of the kingdom as some sort of biblical problem. Yeah. But this certainly wasn't a problem for Jesus, who knew there would be a gap between the present and future reality of the kingdom of God. This was an important aspect of his teaching about the kingdom. Even before he died and rose again, Jesus prepared his disciples for his long absence by telling them that there would be a delay between the departure and his return. Now, I can fully agree with the statements here, as Jesus did clearly teach a gap, a period of absence, before he would return. We see that in the parable, in the words that we just covered. Now, the same type of explanation about what's being said here is made commonly by others to show that the return would not be as soon as expected. For instance, a couple weeks ago, Bob was here speaking on on his message, Why Preterism is Important. Someone on uh, one of the platforms made a comment. They simply shared a link to an essay by someone named Fred Zaspel on a site called the Gospel Coalition. The article was entitled, Preterism, Has All Prophecy Been Fulfilled? This article was your typical type of response. Not a whole lot of meat, not much depth, not much to even deal with the topic. But the most telling and sad weakness was in the closing paragraph where Fred says, This parable, Luke 19, the one we're reading, is in fact given specifically to correct the mistaken notion that his return must be very soon. So the parable we're dealing with, both of these and the prior commentator, says it's clearly showing that his return would not be soon. But now, how soon is soon in their mind? To them, his lack of return for 2,000 years and counting still qualifies as valid for this parable. The problem is they are both missing the clear connection in the parable, and the prior commentator is even missing his own clear point, that Jesus prepared his disciples for this absence. His disciples, the ones standing there listening to them, to him, they were being prepared for a gap. So while it was not immediately right around the corner as they kept expecting, the gap was the amount of time between his leaving and the time when they would see him return. That's what's clearly shown in this parable. Think back to the parable. The future king prepares to leave. He gives 10 specific servants money to do business with in his name. He left for a time and returned. Well, who did he return to meet with? The same ten servants or their distant relatives? Obviously, it was the exact same people with whom he had given the gifts to begin with. The gap between the leaving and returning was long enough to not meet the disciples' imminency expectation, but was short enough that he was returning to the same people that he had given the money to, and it is to them to whom he asks to give an account. Now, Before anybody freaks out and screams about it, I understand we cannot force a strict literalism into a parable. I mentioned that earlier. People want to take this parable as a general story about all believers everywhere and throughout all time. They're all given gifts by God, and they're all going to be held accountable for how they use them in His name while He's gone. That general approach, it becomes necessary because they assume the kingdom return has not happened yet. So they must apply this in a much more broad scale. But this is only assumed and forced upon these stories by missing or glossing over the eminency throughout all of Scripture, including the direct application of most all of the parables. These stories are dealing with current, real-life persecution, the enemies of God that would soon be destroyed in the lifetimes 
of those being persecuted back then. These stories are being spoken to real people who are there listening for guidance. And they are spoken about real people and events in that first century world that were being condemned by Jesus' teaching. He was not instructing them to write these things down as a general story for all time periods. These people were mainly an oral community, and these were spoken to the people listening and understood as relevant to them in their situation. With this and other similar parables, it needs no forcing at all to make the point of it being to the same group before and after the return, not in light of the many other things that the disciples were told would take place. What did Jesus himself tell his disciples elsewhere about things that would happen while he was gone? He says, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew 10. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Matthew 24. Well, those seem to fit pretty well in our view of the parable. Sure, some may say, but these are just general statements about what Christians everywhere are going to go through in every time period. And those are things we just have to deal with in life. But one thing to remember, Jesus is speaking those things to people out loud, warning them of things to come for them before His imminent return. He's not writing a book and sharing it with them as a general handbook for Christians living through the ages. He tells stories where the audience is them, these people, those people in their time, and things about to happen in their time. What else did He promise to those who suffer during His absence? And everyone that hath left houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit eternal life. Matthew 19. There's another slight tie-in with the parable. Those who are faithful to the king shall be given more. What else did he tell these people standing there? How much work, how much, how about much, about how much work they would be performing before his return. He says, When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Over and over again, Jesus is instructing his present followers to do things in their lifetime and not just laying out generic tasks that people everywhere and through all times are going to do. He even promised them directly that he would go away and return to them again verbally assuring them that he was returning in their lifetimes. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. The question has to be asked on a verse like this. If he left to prepare a place in the house of God, and he has yet to return in our day, then has the place been prepared? Has anyone yet to go to the house of God? We assume when we die, we go to heaven at this point. But if this has not yet been accomplished, and he has not finished preparing, and he has not returned to receive anyone, then can we be assured of heaven at death currently? And the final point on this, to whom, to who did he say would be there to see him return with the promised kingdom. Mark 16, Truly I say to you, there will be some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 
The eminence is in relation to those people living and hearing these things spoken to them at the time. And we can plainly deduce from all of this that just like in the parable, the future king Jesus gave gifts to his servants, gifts of the spirits to his disciples, told them to work in his name faithfully until he returned, a returning which would be during the very lifetime of those to whom he gave the gifts, just like in the parable. So I see no need to force anything onto the parable that has not already been plainly linked there by Jesus himself. However, most scholars miss the key point in the parable stories and gospels in general. The very last line in the paragraph I quoted from that commentary sums up the whole problem that results from his missing these points. He says, therefore, we find ourselves in the interim between the already and the not yet, between what is now and what is to come. And so we commonly hear this from the very pulpit. The commentator has misunderstood one major point. He doesn't know what time it is. You can blow it off with the already but not yet concept. That is the way to get around the clear teachings that are found here, and that's their common way of doing it. This parable and all the associated words of Jesus regarding it are dealing with a specific time and a specific event in the near future of his hearers And unlike modern commentators, those hearers knew it was coming in their lifetime. Another popular commentator gets around this in a totally different manner, but is able to at least keep this same people included in a roundabout way. He says, so Jesus commands his disciples to improve their talents, to make the most of them, to increase their uh, capability of doing good, and do it until he comes to call us hence by death to meet him. So he at least finds a way to keep, the, you know, keep it applicable to those who he originally told it to because he makes the second meeting in the parable to occur after the servant's death. So that extends it to anyone and any time throughout history. How this conclusion can be reached from this parable, uh, it's beyond me. <clears throat> it, of course, becomes required by them, and they are forced to come up with such explanations because in their view, the return of the king in his kingdom did not happen in the lifetime of the same servants, but is actually still yet to happen in this, to this day. Now, while we may indeed glean a general concept from this parable of being faithful servants to the kingdom in our own lifetime, it is a great error that we see ourselves as working for a still future returning king and kingdom that was promised to those original servants. For those who have eyes to see and ears to hear this parable clearly teaches us about an event to start and finish within the span of one lifetime, fulfilling the expectations of eminence that has been laid out elsewhere in Scripture. These events would begin soon, within the lifetime of those listening. It spoke to the soon-to-come time when Jesus would ascend to the right hand of the Father to receive the fullness of the kingdom. He says, this, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we, are all, we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It speaks of the time when he would send his servants out with the gifts of power 
to work at spreading the message of the kingdom. Matthew 28, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Those listening to these words and stories of Jesus were expecting, based on his words, that he would return within their lifetimes, within that generation, to be revealed in the fullness of his kingdom reign. We find this teaching of eminence all throughout the New Testament scriptures. Over and over he spoke of the soon coming judgment and the end of the age, events soon coming upon the generation and their enemies. Many parables clearly teach that he would return to those enemies of God who heard him speaking, those who had broken covenant, turned from the ways of Yahweh, and were persecuting his son and his people. He would destroy them and their whole system. And we, readers in their future, can look back at history and see and understand how all of these occurred in the events surrounding the Jewish war and the destruction of Jerusalem that ended in AD 70. These would-be servants of God had ignored the work they were supposed to do for centuries, actually, and now refused the reign of the Messiah. And in the end, they would be cast out and destroyed. Other parables talk of these bad servants, the Pharisees, priests, scribes, and Jewish leaders and teachers through time who were all given gifts from God and should have been gaining returns for centuries using these gifts. Instead, historically, they hoarded them, wrapping them up in a handkerchief similar to the parable. They built a system which only favored their nation and tribes, and that reign of abuse was quickly coming to an end as Yahweh was now calling them out. The handkerchief, or napkin as some translate it, is seen by some scholars as no ordinary wrapping, but as a piece of cloth that wraps the face in the burial of a dead body, like we remember from the scene with the rising of Lazarus. And these things saying... With a loud voice he cried out, Lazarus, come forth. And he who died came forth, being bound feet and hands with grave clothes, and his visage with the napkin was bound about. As well as what we find in the tomb of Jesus. Simon Peter therefore cometh, following him, and he entered into the tomb, and beholdeth the linen clothes lying, and the napkin that was upon his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but apart, having been folded up in one place. The Jews had, in fact, turned the ways of Yahweh, ways that were to be used as a blessing to all nations, into a dead religion filled with nothing but burden and fear. Israel was established to be a group through which all the families of the earth shall be blessed, Genesis 12. But they failed to do the things they should have, and some of the parables deal with their disobedience. Jesus is speaking to these covenant breakers, condemning them and warning of a soon coming judgment. Most all of the parables of Jesus are dealing with topics and events related to those listening to him and were soon to come upon them in their lifetime, in that generation, before all of those hearing him would die. So in our parable, we find that at the king's return, it would be a day of judgment to determine which of the servants truly had boldly worked and advanced the kingdom in his absence. The major separating factor of the judgment is between those who were faithful and those who were not. Faithfulness, not necessarily the amount of return, 
That is the key. Those who were faithful would receive more in proportion to their faithfulness. Those who were not faithful would have what they were given taken away from them. While not necessarily directly related to the events in our parable, we find a similar reaction described earlier in Luke. Take care then how you hear, for to, to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. This is from the tail end section of the verses condemning the covering of the lamp and not putting it on the lampstand to be seen. Historically, we know the people of Israel had taken the light from Yahweh and kept it hid rather than taking it to the world to see and believe. So they were being judged and what they had been given would be taken away and given to the faithful. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people producing its fruits. Matthew 21. As it turns out, part of this historically disobedient servants also make up the group in our parable who would not have this man to be king over them. They would capture him and turn him over to the authorities for torture and execution. When Pilate wrote the sign, King of the Jews, and hung it on the cross, the Jews quickly told him not to do that. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, This man said I am the King of the Jews, John 19. So they just wanted the sign to say that this man claimed to be their king, but they would not acknowledge him as, as being so. Instead, they denied him and plainly stated, We have no king but Caesar, John 19.15. Joel McDermott has this to add to this scenario. The masses of the citizens in this would-be would kingdom actually hated Jesus as well. And in merely a few days, the priests and scribes and leaders among the people would lead the multitude in shouting to have him crucified. These wicked Israelites stood no chance at all when the noblemen returned. They are not even considered servants. Yet they were in open opposition to the noblemen. They were his avowed enemies. As such, their judgment was severe. But as for these servants of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is a clear reference to the slaughter of masses of Jews that would occur when the old covenant system would be old covenant service system would be destroyed in that generation. These enemies screamed against Jesus and said, "His blood be on us and upon our children." Matthew 27:25. This should take the reader back to what we what was said just a handful of chapters earlier in Luke. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Luke 11. Again, Note, it clearly points out that the judgment will be on that generation, the one being addressed by these words. They would be judged and condemned for the blood of Yahweh's servants spilled through all times by those unfaithful people, including the very Son of God that was sent and crucified. The kingdom privileges that they had were being removed and given to the faithful, and they would be cast out and utterly destroyed. Now, all of this was being told to the disciples because as they approached Jerusalem, 
And in their thoughts, the kingdom was coming immediately, possibly as soon as they arrived. But instead, Jesus was correcting them and letting them know of things to happen first and teaching them the ways of the kingdom so that they would be better prepared for the work to come for a while longer. Because there is a vast difference in the cultures between those first century hearers and us, it is of utmost importance that we study to understand the audience relevance in all things. Sadly, so many modern scholars and theologians who write commentaries and books on the subject do not seem to understand this. And so we continue to see out of context and misapplied readings of these things. This parable tells the duty tells of the duty and faithfulness of those who were to stand up boldly and work for the kingdom in the face of the opposition around them while he was away to receive the full kingdom and power. He would return to them and they would be rewarded for their faithfulness. And those who had refused to acknowledge him as king over them, they would be utterly destroyed. During the time of his absence, the disciples spoke of much, spoke on much of this coming scenario. Like Paul to the Thessalonians, directly addressing them and the things that they were going to go through in their time. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who believe, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This judgment and destruction came upon those rebellious and Christ-denying people who would not have them to be king, him to be king over them. When Jesus came on the clouds in his glory and power and destroyed the city and the people of the former city of God, Jerusalem, this took place. With so many of the parables of Christ having spoken about and against these unfaithful people, it was no real surprise to those who had ears to hear and eyes to see the signs of the things that Christ told his hearers to watch for. For us, on this side of the fullness of the kingdom reign, we are in that age to come that was spoken of about to take place for the audience in the first century. For us, we are to still stand up for his kingship. We are to go forth spreading the here and now kingdom authority into every nook and cranny of the world, spreading the message of peace, love, and redemption that was brought unto mankind through the work of the Heavenly Father and his Son. We are under his kingdom and power, so we are to go forth in confidence of his accomplishments in all things and the strength he provides to all of his servants to accomplish his desires. We are his hands and feet, his image bearer to the world that needs answers. As a church, we are not to sit idly by and make our existence here comfortable or hide away in big churches and huge ministries just awaiting 
for the rescue from this world. We should look to stand boldly for the truth in a similar manner of that of the disciples in Acts 4, where they were commanded not when they were commanded not to preach Jesus any longer. It says, Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonder are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. We look around and we see that the kings and leaders of this earth still set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. We see the attacks on every side, but the Lord is here. He is still sovereign. His kingdom is here. And through his people and the power and authority of this kingdom, he is still able to overcome all of those false kings and rulers and everything that they try to bring against the people. He will still hold accountable those people who will not have him to reign over them. If his people would stop being dormant, if they would get active in obeying the Lord and stop waiting just for an escape, then we can begin to see things turn for the better. If not, then we will continue to receive and deserve the judgment that continues to fall around us as a church. May the Lord keep us and help us in our endeavors. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would provoke us to action, that it would provoke us to stand for you, for the truths that we know are there, for your present kingdom and the authority you now hold. Help us to not seek for what we already have, but help us to understand and grasp the fullness of what was bestowed to us and to your people centuries ago. We thank you so much for these things. We thank you so much for your word. Amen.